Welcome to the Inside Carolina podcast, presented by Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Get 15% off your online order with the promo code HEELS15. Go to jerseymikes.com slash order now. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. I'm joined by Jason Staples and Buck Sanders. This is part two of our podcast from last week. It's brought to you by <laughs> Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Uh, last week was the first half. This is the second half. You had a week-long intermission. Buck, I'll start with you. I have not seen a team lose two ball games. Well, I'll rephrase that. Had I not watched a team lose those two ball games in very similar fashion, I don't think I would believe it would have been possible for one team to lose two ball games like that, two games in a row. Your thoughts before we get down into the nitty gritty. Well, you know, I'm going to give you uh, a curveball here, Tommy. I'm going to ask a different question. Um, and that is, would it matter to a lot of people at the Tar Pit message board uh, of, of Inside Carolina had North Carolina won the Virginia Tech game and the Syracuse game, how would it change? How many minds would it have changed about this coaching staff? But that's one of those things we'll never, ever know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So now you're going to have to remind me again what it is you want me to, to, to the question that you need for me to answer. I, I just want uh, your general thoughts over the last 24 hours as you've marinated on Carolina's second uh, devastating loss. Like we titled the podcast last week, Comprehending the Devastating Loss, yeah. part, part there. You know, I, I, hate to, I hate to be that guy, but, um, you know, I hear people say things like this, and, and sometimes I roll my eyes when I hear it, but even myself, I could not help but think even when UNC was up 27 to 20 with two minutes or so left, I could not at that point allow myself to believe they were actually going to walk out of there with a win. And, and that's, that's bad. That's not a good feeling. Uh, you know, it, that doesn't speak well of the amount of confidence that you have in a team. And for good reason. I mean, their record wasn't very good going in. They don't have a history, a recent history of, uh, you know, holding on, maintaining leads or um, coming fr back from behind to win, which they were doing against Syracuse. They were down 20 to seven. And it was sort of, um, impressive that they came back and to take the lead 27 to 20. But even at that point, um, in, in this iteration of UNC football, it's difficult to have confidence that they're going to finish the game. They're going to close it out and come away with the win. And so I think that's probably my number one takeaway from, from watching the game. Jason, he speaks there of the fan base watching and nobody expecting to win. How difficult is it for players to now back-to-back -back games, but to change that 
mindset that creeps in. I think it creeps in with it, all athletes. They can say what they want about, oh, I expect to win or I know I'm going to win. But until you have done that consistently at a high level, it's, and, and to the contrary, you've lost games uh, repeatedly. How difficult is that to change in a player's mind, in a team's mind? Well, I mean, you're always worried about the here we go again phenomenon. Uh, but the one thing that that I think can help insulate against that in this case is these guys all know that they were in position to win the game and that in, in, in at least in the Syracuse game, that their coaching staff put them in position to win the game multiple times i mean that that at at the very last bit they were one play away all that has to be done is make the catch on that on that conversion attempt uh at the end there and they're able to run the clock out and the players know that so it, it's not a situation what you really worry about is being in a situation where let's say players uh players you know coach know that the coach coach blew it and that happens a couple times where, you know, they, they can look at it and be like, man, we were in position, but, you know, we, we, we're getting to the place where we can't trust our coaching staff. That's when you really worry. That's when there's a lot more to worry about. But when you've got a situation where players can, can absolutely and justly point the finger at themselves and be like, man, we, we had that. That's our fault. We, should, we absolutely should have done that. All we had to do was do that. That makes it a little bit easier, actually, for players to handle, because at that point it's just we need to go back to work and get this taken care of. And dang it, you know, we're going to get this because you know at some point we're going to get over the hump. Now, you you do you can get to that place where you feel snake bit, where no matter what I do, there you know it's just something bad's going to break. Yeah, you can get to there, uh, and the more losses pile up, the more that's the case. But I think. The last couple of games, if I were if I were on those teams, I would feel I would feel upset that we hadn't won those games. But at the same point, I'd look at it and be like, "Man, we were we were in position. We were the better team twice, and should have won those games. We're in position to win those games, and we just got to make the play. Let's just go back to work and finish." So I actually think these last two games would be the kind that would more more likely galvanize players to want to put just a little bit more out there than than do the opposite because of the nature of how the losses worked out. Buck, I will agree there. Uh, there's no question that these the coaching staff has not lost the players. Now, we could have had that debate after East Carolina, I believe, because there was a lot of maybe quit going on after that game in Greenville. But after these last two, it's pretty clear that the, the players are in it 100%. Uh, across the board buck your thoughts there because i think that is a huge part when you start talking about coaching staffs and and whether or not you remove them or you change things or whatever your thoughts on that end of it well i i would say start with this that the people that make the decision about whether larry fedora stays or goes that's definitely something on their watch list i mean they are definitely going to pay attention to that because if at any point during this season and, um, 
You know, it, it might could even be the final game of the season. If if those uh, people that have to make that call are watching and the team completely checks out and just lays down and, and doesn't fight at all, um, that's something that, that that those people will pay attention to. Um, so there's that. Uh, as, as far as um, how much that matters, I think it matters tremendously. And, and I'd, I'd like to hear Jason's opinion of that because we've heard the suggestion that, well, you know, maybe the players um, aren't playing hard for their coaching staff. They're just playing hard for themselves. And, you know, I, I tend to disagree with that. I kind of think that if a team is playing hard, um, you know, I can see certain individuals playing hard, uh, you know, for themselves because, you know, they think they're going to the NFL or, you know, for whatever reason, they're maybe they're thinking of transferring and they want to make a good impression or whatever. Um, but when a team is giving a great effort, I don't, I don't think you see a great team effort unless the team is behind the coaching staff. Um, now, I could be wrong about that, and I'd like to hear Jason's opinion about it. Jason, your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that this ball club, from a player's perspective, as we're talking about, has not uh, given up by any stretch. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what Buck said for the most part. I mean, I do think that you can have – players decide to say, you know, blank the coaches, we're going to play for us. And, I, you know, I've, I've more or less seen that happen before, but that's not the norm. What, what normally happens is something like what you saw actually at Florida State last year, where those players quit on their – you could see that team quit. They quit on that staff last year. And when you see players quit on a, on a coach or on a coaching staff – it's awfully hard to come back from that. And, you know, I think Buck's right that you see, if you see these players quit, if you see them, you know, starting to, if the effort stop starts to go, if they start to kind of play like they're not interested in being out there, that, that raises a whole different level of question. But if this team, even though they're losing, continues to fight and continues to show that they uh, trust and respect their coaches, then that's a different proposition. And at that point, you still have a viable situation. Now, you know, I, I do think that, you, you know, the, the, the number one goal of a, of a, of a coach, uh, of a coaching staff in college football is to win. And, you know, if the results don't improve, then yeah, you know, you're going to ultimately, whether this year or, I don't think it necessarily is this year, but, uh, but at some point, you know, if the results don't start to match up with what you expect, then that's when you make changes. But, I do think you have to look at what the players are, what the players on the field are doing at the, at the body language. You have to interview players. You have to, you have to get a sense of whether or not they trust their coaches or not. And if they are trusting and playing hard for them and, and things just aren't going quite the way that they should, you know, a few bad bounces cost you a couple games or, you know, a bad decision here or a drop there or whatever, then I don't think you make decisions based on that. So so, yeah, I, I think I, I largely agree with Buck there. Before we move on, let me tell you about Heels 15. That's all you need to know to get 15% off your order of Jersey Mike's from Jersey Mike's Subs of Chapel Hill. 
Use the code online orders at any Chapel Hill, Hillsborough, and now the Chatham County area stores. That new Chatham County stores, Chatham Crossing and Lowe's Food Shopping Center, right in the heart. Uh, it's 12 minutes from the heart of Chapel Hill, right on the way for anybody coming to Chapel Hill from Laurenburg, Pinehurst, Southern Pines, even Sanford or Pittsburgh. But you can support the Inside Carolina podcast and thank Charlie and Clint and Griffin at Jersey Mike's of Chapel Hill for their continued support of Inside Carolina in this podcast. Use the code HILLS15, get 15% off your order. Go to jerseymikes.com front slash order, pops up locations nearest you, click one of those Chapel Hill area stores, pick your order, pick your favorite subs at checkout, enter code HILLS15 and get 15% off. Skip the line, straight to the register, grab your food and you're on your way. Do it today, do it for a tailgate. Carolina and Georgia Tech, November 3rd, Great opportunity to get 15% off your Jersey Mike's order with that code HILLS15. The three locations in Chapel Hill are all right off I-40. They're super convenient. And now Jersey Mike's is inside Keenan Stadium and with the tailgate guys this fall. Support the IC Podcast. Get 15% off your Jersey Mike's order. It's a win-win for the Inside Carolina Radio Show listeners. So let me sort of shift gears, and Buck, I told you I was going to do this in our pregame talk before we started recording. But I think, and you sent us the stats, and I think the in the the uh, full game statistics with the plays and all that and all the breakdown, but watching that game, I thought the end of the first half when Syracuse had the ball it was just horrific clock management by Carolina by calling the timeout allowing Syracuse to regroup when it looked to me like Syracuse was just going to be uh, content going to half. I believe it would have been 10-7. And then at the end of regulation, when Carolina gets a miracle, great play by Patrice Renee to snag that interception, the ball at the 40, I think those two situations pretty much sum up the Larry Fedora era in Chapel Hill. And for me, at that point, at the end of regulation, um, I sort of fell off the the tracks that was sort of leading leading to uh, continuing the Fedora era, to put it that way. I, I thought the end of that regulation game just sort of sealed the deal for me as far as there needs to be a change. Your thoughts on those specific – because overall, I think the game plan was, was solid, and I think uh, they, the players executed it for the most part and got the most out of it. But those specific play situations, I think, was just – that sort of sums up the last seven years for me. Well, you know, uh, Tommy, how you feel is how you feel. I mean, there, there, there's nothing anybody can do about that. Um, I, I'm going to tell you what we talked about, uh, repeat what I said off the air. And, um, you know, I, I have uh, developed a modest interest in – uh, the Chicago Bears, uh, I'm not quite a season ticket holder yet or, you know, have one of their skyboxes or anything, but yet. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I do uh, follow them and, and watch them when they can, and they were, they were on the, uh, the flat screen this afternoon. So um, I watched that, a lot of that game, and, you know, uh, there were some uh, things that happened during that game in terms of clock management. Um, that I thought were absolutely horrendous. And um, 
if, if I was the uh, general manager, I would have had the head coach in my office uh, begging for his job um, at the end of the game. And, and I think not, not to say that anything you're saying is wrong in terms of mistakes that were made, but I think anybody that follows a team closely and watches every down a team plays can criticize multiple facets of the coaching effort that's going forth. And that even includes Nick Saban. Uh, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet it wouldn't take me long to do some research and find some people, you know, in the Alabama fan base that have been really critical of things that Saban, Carl Saban's has made, you know, on the, um, you know, on the field or decisions that he's made. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think any coaching staff um, gets away clean on every decision that they make. Um, but I, I'm not going to say that you're wrong about any of that. I, I think I'm probably a little bit more of a uh, less of a wind vane guy than you are. You know, my position on the coaching staff doesn't change necessarily based on um, one game so much. Uh, but when it does change, it's it's changed. Uh, it's it's going to take a lot for that to turn around. And, and to be frank, my opinion on this the coaching staff took a huge blow um, because of the East Carolina game. And it still hadn't recovered from that. Um, and my thinking today isn't any different than it was after the East Carolina game. I, I can understand why other people may have changed their opinions, but um, I, I'm, I'm less of a wind, wind vane guy than you are, Tommy. That's a fair point. My, I stated what I thought should have happened after East Carolina. I think we all did. Um, but over the past month, I've sort of come around to the idea of maybe keeping the head guy and – uh, replacing the offensive side of the ball, offensive staff for the most part. And though Greg Barnes and I had a nice discussion off the air um, about why I'm not sure that'll work, and that we'll save that for another time. But, Jason, I just felt like you get the ball at the 40-yard line with 54 seconds left. You've got a guy who's had some accuracy issues in the last couple weeks, no doubt. On, in the field goal area. Freeman Jones has been solid all year until Virginia Tech, and you could argue that his accuracy issues may be snap-related. Either way, he's missed some field goals. But you've got the ball at the 40-yard line with 54 seconds. And they have moved the ball fairly consistently without throughout the game. And at the 40, you got a, what, a 57-yard field goal. Who Jones has shown he's got the leg to make that. And you go incomplete pass, you throw a deep ball to Ratliff Williams. So basically two 50-50 balls, and then you quarterback draw. And then inconceivably to me, I don't know if you what you were trying to do there, but Jason, maybe you can explain it from your expert eyes, is if that was a Hail Mary, that was well short. And if it's completed – the clock runs out. So I'm not sure what they were trying to do there. I mean, let the kid try to kick a field goal to win the game. What difference does it make 
if you're not going to run a play, uh, a Hail Mary to the end. I mean, I just, I cannot. And, and but my point there is the weather vane stuff is we could find four or five what the, you know, what plays calls or situations that Fedora's staff has screwed up every year in all seven of his years, except 2015. Anyway, Jason, you're the smart guy in the bunch, at least uh, in this two-way conversation. Tell me what you think. Thank God that's a low bar, right? Yes. For me, <sighs> for for us talking, Buck's a little better at it than I am. But Yeah, well, either way, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm relieved that I, I, I didn't have to clear too high of a bar there. Uh, so I can, I, I can, I can, I guess have that title conferred upon me. I, I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> Tommy conferred that title on you. Oh, okay. Thank you. There we go. Okay. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, the thing is I so much agree with so many of the calls that Fedora made over the course of the game, most of which were aggressive calls. I mean, when he went forward on fourth down, those were all the right call. Every one of them was the right call by the numbers. You know, th- those were not gambles. Those were the correct call. And a lot of coaches don't get that right. Uh, you know, a little bit, just a little bit earlier in the game, the, what you already mentioned with uh, Ratliff Williams ro- rolling out on, on that uh, direct snap, getting the chance to throw it. That was a fantastic call. Uh, even, the, even the interception on the, on the trick play, that was a good call. It just, it was, uh, you know, about a quarter step from being a touchdown throw, but because he's not used to making the throw under pressure, he underthrew it really badly. But they had a guy 10 yards behind, behind the defense there. So I want to preface this with that, that I thought, you know, Fedora in this one, and I've been very critical in the past. I mean, you'll remember there have been a number of times where I've criticized Fedora's game management uh, and some of the decisions that he's chosen to make that I think have have on game day sometimes cost his teams. This one, for the most part, I, I I liked the way that he managed this game, but that that series I do agree is an exception. Now that said, here's the other problem: is that even though they got Pittsburgh Nathan Elliott in this game, Elliott played really well. Uh, even though that's what you've got, even though um, you know you you have basically done what you wanted offensively most of the game. It's still a situation where do you really trust your offense to throw an intermediate, an intermediate ball? Do you really trust, uh, you know, the possibility of, of turning it over on some things, or do you feel like your best opportunity is to take a 50, 50 ball to your best player who you've already won a couple of those. So maybe, you know, maybe you take one shot at it and, you know, that one doesn't get completed. So now you're in a, now you're in a, you know, second 10 situation, you know, I look at that and I say, I, I kind of get the, the thinking, even though I don't really agree with the thinking. I mean, my preference there is probably to, uh, and, and it's probably to run the ball, but they're probably playing the, you know, the princess bride, uh, you know, Vizzini game where, where they're going, well, you know, that we get it in this situation and they're expecting us to run. So we're going to, we're going to try to catch him napping and, and, get a big play and then we got a chance to to really put this away and well that didn't work so you know now now they're really going to expect us to run so let's try it again <laughs> that's kind of what you what what I suspect may have happened and I kind of get it and especially since you're in a position where it's not like you're going to lose by not being able to kick that field goal although they did I'm talking about in regulation the, the game's tied so 
you know, what you're what you're wanting to do is make sure that worst case scenario, you wind up with a with with a tie where, where you can where you can have a chance to win it and go into overtime. So I kind of get it. But, you know, I do think it could have been managed a little bit better. I, I would have preferred to see something a little bit different, but I, I, I don't think it's as big of a of a problem as as maybe it seemed to be. Buck, I'll let you respond and see if you can move into the smartest guy on the podcast. But first, I'm going to talk about HillsTravel.com. It's the easiest way to book big tra- travel to big UNC away basketball games. Right now, HillsTravel.com is offering a package to Chicago to see UNC take on Kentucky on December 22nd. It's one of the biggest games of the entire college basketball season. Visit HillsTravel.com now. Call 336-855-0060 to book. Package includes nonstop airfare from RDU to Chicago, transportation to and from the airport to the hotel, and two nights at the Chicago Omni. Basketball teams staying there. Christmas, Christmas decorations. If you get into that stuff, great shopping in the area. Great, great chance to see the Tar Heels on a huge stage against a great opponent opponent in a great city right around those holiday times heelstravel.com now call 336-855-0060 to book i just think it was asinine that they didn't try a field goal there <laughs> can i make it more blunt i mean i don't want to hurt any feelings but i just do not know how you do not try a field goal there iron bowl nick saban completely agrees with you <laughs> Well, yeah. uh, if they lose that way, that'd just be, you know, oh, well, but at least try, try hard. But- well, you know, the, um, the first thing I will say is that, uh, Jason gets a hundred bonus points for the princess diary reference. Uh, <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, so, um, yeah, he gets, he gets a uh, hundred smart guy points uh, for using that reference. <laughs> um, you know, uh, again, you know, I, I think uh, any call that they make there that's unsuccessful is just invites criticism. And, uh, you know, uh, could it have been done different? Should it have been done different? I'm not really here to argue that point, but I'm just saying that in the general scheme of things, that it's easy to criticize plays that don't work. Uh, Now, did everybody do their job on that play? Did everything go as it was drawn up on a chalkboard? Uh, We don't know that, but we do know the result, which was not a good one. And and, uh, I I think it's probably – worth mentioning that you, you you know Nathan Elliott god love him god bless him uh and and he was focused and he was intense and you know he did a, an amazing job within his skill set but Fedora's offense is predicated on the ability to threaten every area of the field and it's predicated on the ability to get the ball to playmakers in space. And from what I saw and from what I've seen several times this year, and, you know, Bo Corrales actually uh, added to that contingent 
against Syracuse is that North Carolina has some playmakers that can be dangerous in space and, and don't do a horrible job of getting in space. But Nathan Elliott just does not have the wherewithal to threaten every area of the field equally. You know, he's not going to throw the ball over the middle, intermediate pass, and complete that pass without an increased danger of having the ball, you know, tipped at the line of scrimmage or intercepted over the middle as he does making the kind of passes that he made Saturday night. And, And so... And when you get down to crunch time and, you know, it's do or die and people are focused, it's just not as simple as it might otherwise look like to do what you want to do because Elliot just can't threaten every area of the field in, in an equal fashion. If he could, we'd be back to 2015. And, and, and honestly, I think this team – if it had Marquise Williams at the helm, might be, you know, five and zero or whatever at this point. Um, but Elliot does not have that ability, um, and God bless him. He's, you know, what UNC has at the point at this point. Um, you know, that they're not going to throw Manny Miles out there, and apparently Jace Ruder isn't ready and. And, and if he was ready, do we really want to burn his red shirt at this point if, by playing him the rest of the year? So, you know, I do think that some of the play calling and decision-making gets formed around the idea that the quarterback doesn't have a complete skill set necessary to, to do what we would actually like to do. Jason, your thoughts on the talent on offense. We've talked about recruiting. We've talked about – I agree with Buck. I think the talent on offense, save one position, and I, it's tough to argue with the guy. He hadn't thrown an interception since the first week of the season. Granted, I, I understand the caveats that Buck talked about, but just overall talent, where do you see that as far as this team? Because a lot of people are concerned that that talent is not there. I I agree with you guys that the talent is absolutely there minus one position. I mean, even up front, look at, listen, Florida State has a ton of talent, a ton. Look at their game against Syracuse and look at, look at North Carolina's game against Syracuse. Especially on the offensive side, Florida State couldn't block Syracuse. Neither tackle. Those tackles, that was the worst display of, of offensive tackle tackle uh, play that I've probably ever seen from a Power 5 team. Maybe from any team against Syracuse when Florida State played them. North Carolina's tackles handled that Syracuse set of ends. North Carolina dominated Syracuse up front on offense. They, they won that game up front. And then you look out wide and... Those wide receivers won that matchup. You've got Michael Carter in the back in the backfield. That's a, that's a dude, man. They they've got they've got players on this offense. You know the tight end is 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 going to get a sniff in the NFL for sure. So you know there are players, 
everywhere but the most important spot right now. And the thing is, they've recruited two pretty good prospects. Those two true freshmen are good prospects for the future at that position. It's just they're true freshmen. If either one of those guys was a year older, or if both of those guys were a year older, and then you know one of them was hurt, you'd have the other one going in. And this offense would look completely different. And I think Buck's right. I said it last week that I think it's very possible that if Marquise Williams or Mitch Trubisky, I'm sorry, Mitchell Trubisky. No, yeah, he's, he's, Mitch cool Trubisky. he's cool with yeah. Mitch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, if, if one of those guys was, was quarterback this year, this team would probably be undefeated. That's the, that's the, that's the margin. And I, I think it's just getting harder and harder. And this is the other thing. This is the other part of the calculus that you have to have to handle in terms of making coaching decisions at this stage is you have to look at the health of the roster. You have to look at how hard it is to ensure that you have good quarterback play in today's era. Cause you can't just stash quarterbacks anymore. You know, you can't recruit two guys. It, it, I mean, it would be better right now if, if Logan bird was on campus, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you can't, you've got to have guys. Right. And and that guy would probably be the starter right now, but he left when he went, when he didn't win the job and he would be the starter right now. I'm confident of that. And he'd be, and he'd be an improvement on what we've seen. In fact, if he were starting, they might have one loss maybe. And so you look at that when you're evaluating the coaching situation and you go, well, geez, they've done pretty well filling everything out, but you know, things at that position have not quite worked out the way that they should the last couple of years. And that immediately follows three really good years at that position, including one number two pick in the draft. I mean, they've, they've done well there and they've got a couple other solutions on the roster. Do you say, well, you know, let's roll the dice one more year. Let maybe see if we can get a couple changes made to, to uh, address some deficiencies that we are seeing and then, you know, go from there on the flip side of that, you know, then on the other hand, right. Uh, so one, once more, we're back to the princess bride. Um, the, uh, the other the other problem though is you have to look at how at the at the trend line for recruiting. Last year's recruiting class was was actually quite good. There, you know, for for North Carolina, that was a nice step forward and and good foundation for the future. But if you keep losing, you have two losing seasons in a row. Some of that interest, some of the feeling of there being some good momentum in the program starts to dissipate. And are you falling behind your rivals? And you know. Where, when do you want to press that reset button and bring somebody else in? It, you know, you have to evaluate where you are in recruiting because that's, that, that's if, if your current staff isn't going to be able to, to recruit well enough to, to, to regain momentum, then yeah, you do have to move on. But you do know that anytime you're going to make a, a coaching change, especially now that you have that early signing period, you're effectively conceding an entire recruiting cycle. So... You know that that when you press the reset button, you know that you're that you're conceding that recruiting cycle, and you're probably gonna. You're, that means you're gonna have two more years of of rebuilding as a result. So you know it, there are no easy decisions, no no good ways to look at this when things are are where they are. Well put there, Buck. I'll let you close the show. That was part of mine and Greg's conversation uh, after one of our shows last week. Is is if you get a bunch of new coaches, assistant coaches, a who's going to come. Um, but I guess money talks so they can get somebody and B 
what if you're just prolonging it, the inevitable and you're setting that, you know, on the message board, it used to be like uh, real Carolina fans think 2006 or whatever it was. Which which was said in 02. Yeah. And now we're talking about, you know, 2025 or something. But, you know, that's the chicken or the egg or, or the big conundrum is what do you do? But your thoughts just uh, in wrapping the show after another week of the same old, same old. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things where, um, you know, I think a lot of it depends on your perspective on coaching versus talent. And, you know, my uh, philosophy or uh, belief um, on talent is that um, talent is, is important, absolutely important across the board. But it's really, in my personal opinion, more important on defense than it is offense. Um, and on offense, you've got control of the chalkboard first. Um, and you know what you're doing and where you're going and the other team doesn't. And so I think it takes a different caliber of athlete instinctively and physically, uh, to play great defense than it does to play great offense. And the exception to that might be the quarterback, but still, uh, otherwise, you know, I think you need some war daddies on defense, uh, more so than you do on offense. But if you go that route and you make a change, are you of the belief that a coaching staff is going to be able to take the players you have now and exponentially increase the results on the field through the force of their ability that they bring to the table as far as the X's and O's and coaching? And I have to say, especially based on the evidence of 2018, that's a difficult proposition to sell. Um, you, know, you, you take Chip Kelly, enormous success at Oregon, you know, took a program that was just, you know, North Carolina, basically, and, and took them to, you know, uh, the top 10 of the NCAA every year and, and competed in, you know, for BCS and playoff spots and things of that nature. He comes back to the game at UCLA and took over that roster. He hasn't exactly set the world on fire. Uh, and, and you can go down um, sort of uh, a list of coaches uh, similar to that, that, uh, you know, came out with tremendous, um, resume and success and, and then went to a different program and their success wasn't immediate. So I, I think whether or not UNC retains Fedora or doesn't retain Fedora, there's some pain awaiting UNC in football, either, either way it goes. Um, and particularly, which for me is, is a nightmare scenario. And some people don't feel this way and including some people that are pretty powerful in Chapel Hill, by the way, um, they want a defensive minded coach. They want another Butch Davis kind of guy, you know, uh, 
conservative on offense, you know, uh, dedicated to the defensive side of the ball, that kind of thing. Well, if you do that, then the guy, you bring that guy in, he absolutely does not have anything close to the roster he needs to be successful, and it's going to take him some time to get there. Um, so there's pain involved there. If you retain Fedora and, and they're, they're not, they're getting more or less butchered on the recruiting trail. I mean, uh, not that the players that they've got are not going to be good players. Uh, we've seen that time and time again, uh, where, you know, players that were not well thought of all of a sudden become, you know, all ACC guys and whatnot, but they're, they're not doing well compared to their rivals in, in football recruiting as we speak. And if they retain Fedora, Fedora, that's probably going to continue. And they're going to go into the next recruiting cycle if Fedora is retained, facing an uphill battle after two subpar years, getting people committed to play for North Carolina. So there's going to be some pain involved there. And and so you bring in these hotshot assistant coaches. They do very well, but you're still going to have an uphill battle to completely sell, you know, elite level uh, prospects on UNC. Either way you go, either way you go, I believe, you're going to have an issue in recruiting for probably the next couple of cycles, at least the next cycle. This the well the 2018 and the 2019 cycle. So that's where we are, and um, so how does that wash out? I don't know, um, but I, I don't think. And, and we saw this with Carl Torbush. You don't make a decision about whether to retain a coach or not retain a coach based on how it's going to affect recruiting. I think that's a bad decision every single time you do it. Um, so that, that's where I come out on that. Well, uh, I said I was going to let that end the show, and I will. Felt like a eulogy a little bit, but Buck and Jason, I'm sure we'll have these conversations again in the future. Carolina, of course, goes to Virginia this time. I think kicks at 12:20 in Charlottesville. Uh, but yeah, Buck, Jason, appreciate you joining me on this one. That'll do it. Thanks, guys. I can't end the show without saying inconceivable. Inconceivable. <laughs> I used a better word. I do not guys. think it means what you think it means. <laughs> guys, right, guys. appreciate it. Later. <laughs> appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Inside Carolina podcast presented by Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Get 15% off your online order with the promo code HEELS15. Go to jerseymikes.com slash order now.